Today on the Harvard Data Science Review podcast, we are discussing how the government collects data to serve the public and how to ensure that this process does not hurt the people it aims to serve. We learn about the important good that comes from this, but we also ask questions about privacy, about the greater good over the individual, and how transparent the government should be in their data collection on private citizens. And there is a big surprise at the end. Who should we really be worried about when it comes to our privacy? I'm Liberty Vittert, feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review, and I, along with my co-host, Shali Meng, our editor-in-chief, will be asking these questions and more of two guests intricately tied, but also with different responsibilities and perspectives. Tim Persons, chief scientist of the Government Accountability Office and the managing director of its science, technology, assessment, and analytics team, comes to us, obviously, from the federal government. And our other guest, Julia Lane, a professor at NYU and co-founder of the Coleridge Initiative, is a nonprofit that is working with governments to ensure the data are used more effectively for decision-making. She's also the author and editor of a dozen books, most recently Democratizing Our Data, a manifesto, published by MIT Press. So without further ado, Shally, let's get started. Tim, let me start with you first. Uh, you're basically as the head of the you know government data, and so can you just explain a little bit about you know what are the most important things you do, and also give an example how what you do can impact you know the individuals and the public. Yes, thanks, Shelley. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here uh, with Julia. Uh, I always welcome these conversations. Uh, so I am the chief scientist of the U.S. Government Accountability Office. We are. Are the largest of the legislative branch or congressional agencies. Our primary mission is supporting the entire Congress, uh, all the committees, standing committees in House and Senate on oversight, insight, and foresight of any questions that uh, they may ask or things that are currently before them or may come before them. So, So I lead our science technology assessment and analytics team. And in that regard, I've established a Innovation Lab, which is designed to bring and enhance digital services, including uh, advanced analytics to bring uh, what Julie and I are passionate about, which is evidence-based policymaking, data-driven, data science-based analysis to our national decision makers as they, and even hopefully in anticipation of them making law on things. We're in a time where uh, we need not only bipartisanship, but we need nonpartisan solutions and uh, we need data-driven evidence-based basis in order to help that policymaking to to focus debate and to yield better solutions for the not only individuals but the entire country. I wanted to ask Julia a question. I, I was looking through this article that you recently wrote for the Harvard Data Science Review and I was also looking at your book. What I sort of saw is that it's how government data, and specifically government data in the social sciences, has been slower to pick up on automation, on using data, than really anybody else. And that, in fact, that that sort of means that we're hindering democracy. I wanted to understand what would be an example of how something like that would hinder democracy. Uh, So that's a terrific question. And and as Tim said, it's something that I'm very passionate about as well. Let me use a very kind of contentious example for right now. So the count of the American people 
sits at the core of the United States democratic system. It is cited at the very beginning of the Constitution. If you don't count people, they don't have a voice. So we just went through the 2020 decennial, and you have wonderful people in the government's federal statistical system. So this is not a knock on the high quality professionals who do their work. But it's fairly clear that there were a lot of challenges, partly induced by the pandemic um, and the notion that you have to physically go from and, and count people if they, if they don't respond online. In addition to the challenges with the count where there was systematic undercounts, it looks like, of minority groups and low-income individuals for a series of technical reasons, there was a decision made by just a few people at the Census Bureau to institute something called differential privacy. And that statistical approach, cryptographic approach to protecting privacy was made independently of large-scale input from the community, from the people whom it affected. It has been extremely controversial. And there has been no way for the community that is affected to have systematic input. And that then has affected and reduced the ability of communities of color and of low income to be counted and for their voices to be heard. And so I think what we're talking about here is instituting different ways in which people can review the choices that are made and the way in which it impacts our society and our democracy. There's another uh, great question here about needing this kind of localized information. As statisticians, we obviously say, sure, right, because you want to deep stratification. You want to know much more relevant. Another uh, great example in that area currently is, is of great interest. We're, we're producing a special issues as well is on the individualized treatment, individualized medicine. And that's where you need a lot more individual uh, information. Now, there is an issue that as more you want to personalize the more detailed information. There's more invasion of the uh, of the privacy as well. There's a potentially more risk of review individual data, which is necessary for uh, for this kind of research. And also, when you have a lot more people involved in these studies, there is also issues about how do you protect the privacy. If there's a lot of people who needs to work on things, they implement that may or may not be easy. Uh, there, there, I, I, I'll disagree that, uh, you know, that is where we have invested a lot of energy mm -hmm. at the College Initiative mm -hmm. is uh, building the, the potential of using cloud and technical approaches to track things. So that is scalable. So you have technical approaches that are different from differential privacy that could empower groups to look at the impact and make their own decisions rather than having a small group of high priests making the decisions for them. Uh, Helen Nissenbaum is, has talked a lot about contextual privacy. Yep. Privacy is not an absolute. I may make different no, definitions or decisions if I'm looking at protecting my health and the, the health of my family, which we saw with COVID. And we've seen in the security after 9-11, the decisions that people have made when faced with different trade-offs can be very different. Oh, absolutely. I, I completely agree. I think what I was referring to is the 
we certainly need more training of our you know, students, for example, to understand these issues, understand how to make these decisions. And I think uh, currently, if, you, if we talk about something that's behind, I think uh, the, uh, the education sector is pretty behind. Uh, the current way of, uh, you know, at least in statistics, teach about these methods probably are not really, as you suggest, it should be really contextual, uh, you know, dependent. How do you make the judgment? So that's exactly right. Now, the Evidence Act, which is what uh, Tim has been working on, is very clear on privacy data and a learning agenda. So one of the reasons that when we built the College Initiative to respond to the Commission on Evidence-Based Policymaking that Speaker Ryan put in place, we also built in training classes so people could be taught, students could be taught to work with confidential data in a secure environment. So the Gates Foundation has funded our work with the United Negro College Fund and Excellencia, which is Hispanic serving institutions. Mm -hmm. What we're working with faculty at HBCUs and HSIs is how to work with confidential microdata and see, understand better the underrepresentation of minorities because too often in STEM, in science, uh, there are too few people, African-Americans or Hispanics to be able to see from public use data because all the information is suppressed or made too noisy. So we are exactly doing that. And I completely agree that training people to work with their own data and look at the impact of privacy constraints on the quality of the data that is produced is, is critical. Jim. So Xiaoli, I'll just I'll say just it's a well-placed question because we can succeed and produce data scientists that optimize their algorithms and solve problems. But if they're devoid of that policy contextual trade space, and I'll just tell you, and and bear in mind, scientists don't use infinitives lightly, okay? But there Mm -hmm. is always a trade-off, right? And so my example was we had some, uh, a, a university community I've been affiliated with did some fantastic work uh, looking at negative health health outcomes, a particular health issue that was able to be seen in the minority population of its local city. And you could have theoretically had public health implementation measures enacted. However, it would have been a violation of the health, health insurance Portability and Protection Act or HIPAA Mm -hmm. to go in and target individual folks that you know are high risk for this area. And so there's this whole thing of there's optimizing the algorithm, finding those individuals, but the privacy and the health uh, information and insurance rights came into play. And it was this trade-off of, you know, literally lives are on the line, but how do you deal with that? And it is a very a challenging issue. That's the kind of thing that that needs to go to the policymakers to say, look, you, we elected you to represent us. Here's the trade space uh, because we can't protect privacy and more lives will be lost. Or we could try and uh, implement, you know, measures in a in a legal way, but you know, bending that just a little bit. It is it is an exceptionally complicated issue uh, in all these cases. So I think you're exactly right. We cannot train only just to optimize our algorithms, that's important, but it doesn't stop there. It has to be put in the, what problem am I solving? What does this mean? Or what are the implications of this? I wanna bring this back to this very big, this very big phrase of democratizing data. Whether it's 
you know, for Tim, whether for you, you know, you see what's happening in the government. Do you really want to open up all of this data to the public and to public practitioners? And Julia, when you when you talk about democratizing data, do you mean for people outside the government, for practitioners and for data scientists outside of the government to use this data? Or do you mean for the actual public? What does that really mean when we say democratizing data? For who? And what are the dangers of that, Tim, you know, coming from sort of the government perspective? Sure. So the government has, as we've been discussing throughout, there is this tension between algorithmic performance and and leading to decisions and implementing actions, perhaps government-led, perhaps not, but uh, in, in, in opposition potentially to or in conflict with privacy and civil liberties. Our goal is to try and find the and in that. But nonetheless, we've seen things where anonymized data has with extra data brought in, you know, the power of big data analytics has been de-anonymized, right? So this is sort of the power and the the excitement about what can be done, but also the warnings or the caveats. So you do need to think about what data we have and what is actually appropriate to be able to be released. I don't, and I suspect all of us, I'm pretty sure, don't want our health records out there with the PII framework around it, the personally identifiable. Now, do I care if I'm a vaccinated person and I'm just one of the statistical numbers of, you know, the many millions in the U.S.? that I don't think that matters in terms of uh, those particular things. And so you have, again, not all data are equal in these things. We have to work from what is the question we're trying to solve or the what governance are we trying to support? And then how do we implement these or, or put it in a constrained optimization framework to say we want to minimize privacy risk, minimize de-anonymization. And if we're doing some kind of data alchemy in the cloud and coming up with answers and snazzy things, but uh, we also want to optimize our outcomes and again, live in our constitutional framework. It is possible, but admittedly it's hard. And so uh, as a government, you just can't willy nilly post things out there. One of the challenges is there are agencies, apart from the statistical ones that we've already mentioned, there are agencies that need to change for some at least subset of their data. They need to change their mindset from need to know, right? There's a phrase like data hugging, like it's my data, (laughs) right? That kind of thing. And you have to say, look, this is not need to know. This is now responsibility to provide. Right. Mm-hmm. And when you think through a through a data lens, it's a cultural change. So think about NASA as an agency. I always thought of NASA as big rockets. You know, the, I was the mm-hmm. I grew up in the shuttle program. Cool. All this sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, when you boil it down, peel all the layers back. NASA is a data agency. Right. They're just collecting data. And on an interstellar basis and going out and they just have fancy appliances that cost billions of dollars. Right. To be able to collect that data, to drive our and that yield positive results. So, you know, when you really think about it historically, we just never have thought through this lens. And, and if we change that lens, then we need to uh, be able to act accordingly. And that is the big culture change, as so much of the federal government is a services oriented entity. Now, we need to think about how we enable all those services in a digital world. Right. And so there are things that are going on. But we have a long way to go on that. And some of that is that culture change. And part of that is leveraging that data 
making it have a responsibility to provide. We did a key work on, uh, you know, critiquing the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention because they weren't mm-hmm. providing the data. They weren't doing the modeling and doing that what's necessary peer review among the science scientific community. They didn't have that view. And we started this scientific uh, oversight work on CDC's modeling in 2018, right? So we were trying to point out that this particular issue was there. And lo and behold, 2020 comes. Uh, it's the anus horribilis, as the queen would say. And we have got to do better with that because we have to change the way we think about doing that. That's a fantastic point, Tim, about the responsibility to produce. And I, you're right. I never thought of NASA as a data agency, but now it's going to stick in my mind that uh, think about that way many agencies is of that nature, right? After all, the worst statistics is coming about state, you know. So uh, uh, it's it's not surprising. Um, I if, want to, uh, if uh, I could, to, sure, yeah, go go ahead, Julia. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple of points. One is that it's not really a decision about whether to only have internal data or external data. In mm-hmm. point of fact, even the Census Bureau, which says that it's private or public, they have multiple tiers of access. Correct. They have. Uh, a few people who see the actual PII, then they have people with need to know in particular projects. Uh, then they have external researchers, which have a different level of accreditation. And then you have public use data. Mm-hmm. The tiered access, which is provided for in the Evidence Act, could be thinking about having a human approach. Your biggest vulnerability is humans trying to re-identify. Mm-hmm. So if you if you control access at different tiers, so you've got five safes, right? Safe projects, safe people, safe settings, safe data, de-identified data, safe exports. Really, your biggest risk is the people. So not everyone needs to get access to microdata. The governor's office, the workforce boards, when they're looking at unemployment, they actually just want summary tabulations. Imagine having confidential summary tabulations in which people sign, the people in the governor's office and the workforce boards agree that they will not attempt to re-identify. Then, and this is what we're doing with a number of the states uh, led by the state of Illinois. So we are able to provide to them confidential summary tabulations, which if we use standard disclosure protection rules, 90% of the cells for small counties would be suppressed. Now it's down to 5%. So the Mm -hmm. workforce boards and the governor's offices can make informed decisions about resource allocation because they've agreed not to attempt to Mm re-identify. That is rethinking the way in which we make things available. Imagine doing the same for career counselors, instead of adding noise to the data, they sign an agreement. We will not attempt to re-identify. They get much better information to guide students' decisions about career paths. You can apply those confidential summary tabs combined with a non-disclosure agreement to, mm-hmm. in many different situations. Mm-hmm. It's a terrific point. Uh, Julia, as you are talking about, the, the biggest risk is actually human, right? 
Does that actually also a big part of your, you know, you wrote article for a Harvard Data Science Review multiple times. And thank you so much. And thank you also being a, a great uh, a board members to supporting us. But the point I want to make is that I never thought about this way, but now just a moment ago, is, your, is a part of your emphasis on automation is also trying to reduce the human involvement, therefore reduce the kind of individual risk because the human is trying to de-identify. Is that part of the consideration as well? That's part of the conversation, although it's a little bit different. It is engaging the community mm-hmm. at the key points. That's what AI is about. You can't mm-hmm. just apply models. You've got to have right. the humans. And Tim made such a terrific point on NASA. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they get massive amounts of information, more than they can deal with. And it's also true with the CDC, right? So what happened was at Johns Hopkins, do you remember? We had the Johns Hopkins curation of health data. So that was citizen science. With NASA, the Sloan Digital Sky Survey had citizen scientists come in and build a community of curation around the data led by Alex Saleh. Um, The challenge and where I think the federal government can come in, Alex Saleh at Johns Hopkins and then the team also at Johns Hopkins that did the information about the COVID, they were essentially supported and by funded by some passionate individuals. A federal effort, because the federal government has a strong interest in building citizen science and building community engagement, a federal effort to support these local activities and support, you know, confidential summary tabulations to local areas would be consistent with the Evidence Act and would, in fact, be a pragmatic approach to democratizing data. So far, we have talked about this whole issue of the government data and, you know, the social impact, everything but pretty much within the content kind of United States. And there's obviously a problem, a question faced by any government, any country globally. Are there some other countries, other government or other uh, citizen groups, you know, do better and we can learn from them? Or are there lessons to be drawn that uh, we need to be aware of? Sure. So I'll I'll start off, uh, Xiao Li. I'll just start with the general topic of privacy, which which is in the context of all this, the 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 age of the algorithm that we're in, mm-hmm. and so on, like we've been talking about. Uh, I think our colleagues in Europe were uh, prime movers in terms of the general data protection regulations mm-hmm. and GDPR, and you see those now. You'll just have a U.S. website because any entity that is a business, really, if it has to have a regulatory framework, it wants only one of them. It doesn't want uh, a number of things. So I think there is some leadership in our, our colleagues there. I think we've been able to implement that in, in our own way in the U.S. So I think just from a policy perspective, there is some, some movement there. There is, of course, a tension between uh, just saying, well, protect everything and don't do anything, which would then, of course, shut Mm -hmm. down innovation. We don't want to do that. So I think there's opportunities for us to continue to be in America, a risk-taking culture in the digital services, but still not do it in a move fast and break things kind of mentality on that. I think we apply, like Jali, you were talking about, how do we train our scientists to think about that? And by the way, that's that's what we've been doing in our AI framework uh, we developed, which talk, speaks to a lot of these issues. And we did it in um, uh, in complement with uh, our, our colleagues in the United Kingdom, for example, there's some key work on AI governance. So we, we have our framework out now. It's, it's actually available to the public. But we talk about how to deal with the, the four pillars, really, of good AI 
mm-hmm. accountability and oversight is in data and, and the governance itself, who has access. This is similar to what Julia was saying on the tiered system and things like that. And then you have the performance, which is the optimization, the data scientists doing the algorithms, doing the snappy things in the digital lab and, and things. Uh, but then you do have to have that ongoing uh, verification, that checking, that quality assurance uh, as things go. So you're not suffering algorithmic drift. So we've seen colleagues in Europe, in the UK uh, doing this. Um, in my area, I've seen our British counterparts doing the, on um, the parliament are helping to bring much more uh, real-time oversight by essentially data mining their own reports on something because there are times you'll see that cycles is sort of like nothing new is under the sun. A question will come back up, mm-hmm. and it, but it'll be a new parliament, or in our case, it would be a new Congress, and right. it would be it's treated as if we've never dealt with this before. We don't know, <laughs> you know, and, and then oftentimes like laws made, but we did something back here, and now they're in conflict. It's an amazing thing. We don't have that institutional memory, but analytics allows you to do that, yeah. and so that's one of the things we're doing in our lab is how do we just mine what's going on? And we learned some lessons here, apply them in our lab so that we could have a daily web scraping of every committee's website. And if they have a hearing coming up in two days, and that's oftentimes the amount of time you get, 72 hours or something like that, it is very quick. You do not have time to do a full geo study in three days. So you scrape it, you say they're doing a thing on X. And then we say, well, what do we have on X? And then we would data mine on X. And then we give them packaged digital content instead of saying, here's like this list of a hundred reports for you to go read. The, the, the staffers and members don't have that. We really are passionate about focusing on that absorption of how we convert uh, our content into a readable summary for the member that c- they can have in real time on their device that's going to be in their hand and so on. And again, we're seeing some good things in our partners in that and Australia as well. Oh, uh, don't talk about Australians. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm a New Zealander. No, you no. know, <laughs> watch out, watch out. So, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy, Julio. You and I can take a trip to New Zealand just to verify what the Kiwis are doing. <laughs> right, so okay. I'm, I'm well, happy please, please yeah. take us, okay? Yeah, yes, exactly. Okay. We should all go. HDSR, right. I have to bring this back. I have to play devil's advocate for a minute. We've talked a lot about the funnel of the U.S. government to the public, the trust that the government is giving to government, you know, local government to the public. But we haven't talked a lot about it the other way around, about how the public trusts the government. So, for example, 2018, there was a Supreme Court ruling that federal agencies need warrants for cell phone data that came out of a crime someone committed and they, they got the person's cell phone data. And they said, no, no, you need a warrant to do that. So the way, and I mean, there's lots of reports about this, um, the way federal agencies are getting around this is they're simply buying consumer data. So instead of creating the data themselves, they're buying this really high-level consumer data and getting a lot of information on citizens. So in the sense of how can the public trust the government, is that okay? You know, how, how do we put in safeguards for the privacy of people with the government bringing the data in that they're buying from private companies? Great question. It's it's at the heart of the issue, again, that trade space liberty on privacy versus performance on things. Do we want to find that, the, you know, we have a country of over 300 million and many uh, visitors and things like that, a, a vast majority of them overwhelmingly are not like, for example, a terrorist, but every once in a while you do. 
So we want to solve that problem and yet do exactly as you're saying, not have like a, a Orwellian 1984 way of life uh, on that. I will say, uh, you know, this doesn't get the government off the hook. It's just that the rules apply to the government. And I think having seen the government, having seen multiple sides of this, the biggest risk that I've seen emerge has been what the private sector could know about you. And it's very interesting. You asked Liberty about what's going on in other countries. Part of the GDPR, think of Germany, right? Previously a split east-west nation state. One was a totalitarian communist regime and the other was a, a free market Western society, etc. It ultimately unified. It's a good news story. But Germany is exceptionally focused on this uh, privacy issue, what the government can know about you. And it's very interesting, the social science. And by the way, that's all because the East German Stasi was one of the highest performing in terms of an invasive privacy violating type uh, era. That's not that's an infamous statement I'm making. But because of that culture on the reunification, Germany has very strict government controls over that. However, Germans are okay with, let's say, BMW as a manufacturer being able to track where you, the vehicle is on the Autobahn or they have no problem with that. So, so much of this, Liberty, is what is our societal values and so on. We have given our data willingly to, but I think unknowingly about the implications of that to the major software companies that we all know, and we've given it to them for free, and they can know things about us like that, that far exceed the ability to, in the depth of, of incisiveness, they just want to sell us more stuff. But I'm saying that's, that's very powerful. I, I get the issue that the government has, the ability to put people in jail, the ability, you know, the ability to arrest people, to sue, to sue people, to confiscate on certain things, tax evasion, all of that. But I think the bigger risk is oftentimes really today in the private sector. I think you're absolutely right. And we, um, I did a book with Helen Nissenbaum on privacy, big data and the public good, which, uh, you know, we've got the wild west. There aren't any rules on the private sector. The rules in the public sector are actually really harmful, I think. And I'm a bit worried and I don't want to put you on the spot here, Tim, but uh, there is some pending legislation on uh, secure multi-party computing, which could actually severely damage our ability to test the robustness of record linkages with noisy data that could again damage our ability to understand outcomes for uh, underrepresented minorities, low-income individuals, and certain ethnic groups. Uh, Zhao Li, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Uh, matching Asian names in Anglophone society can create all kinds of problems and you're going to get systematic biases with secure multi-party computation that is really going to hurt things. So I almost worry that in the public sector, the implementation of different types of technologies can really negatively affect unvoiced groups. So in the private sector, they can do anything they want and the public sector is hamstrung. Good intentions, but bad consequences. Yeah, and I agree that's a risk. I think whichever thing we pick, we'll have to, it really boils down to recognizing what the double-edged sword is. And, and there's always a double-edged sword, by the way. Again, I'm using an infinitive, always a always. double-edged sword. Uh, okay, yeah. so now it's a matter of what risks we're willing societally to accept 
in balance with the the benefits. And obviously, we want to maximize the benefits, minimize. So it's a it's a you know it's a joint optimization program, Jolie, but it's being done at a policy and societal level. And it's and one, not done by a small group of people. Yes, and and one thing that we're not doing, I'll just put it on us as scientists and engineers and so on, we can be very good at developing things, but not really projecting forward and thinking in that larger framework and then communicating about it. So we are have been terrible at communicating, okay, we could do this, but here's what this means. And that's really the biggest part of my job is that it's a simple communication of saying, look, you know, if you do this secure multi-party, here's the upside, here's the downside, right? Exactly. We know what you're trying to do, but there's often perhaps always some kind of unintended consequence. And so our, our, our job is to see how we can see farther and, and again, do this in a fact-based nonpartisan way, but have an imaginative yet realistic approach to be able to say, here's the upside and the downside. Well, and a federal register notice doesn't do it. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Tim, you're absolutely correct that uh, um, the whole communication is so important. Most time we create a problem, humans create a problem for ourselves is because we're not being transparent. We set the wrong expectations. Then people find the problem. So why did you tell me earlier? Most of us are very reasonable. If you tell us earlier what we're getting to, you know, things are just much easier. And I think that that is one of the biggest things for the data science community in terms of educating ourselves. Let me closing by asking the question we always ask, which is, if you have a magic wand, what problem you want to solve in, in, in such such an area? I decided for this podcast, I'm just going to leave it completely open because you guys touched everything about, not about just data science, but about a society. For digital society, these are the problems that we will kind of forever struggle with and we probably do better. But So I want to ask each of you very quickly, Julia and Tim, if you have a magic wand, what the problem you want to solve? My magic wand, I love that, by the way. I use that all the time. Magic wand. I say, if I had a fairy wand, what would you do? What I would do, what I would do is wave the fairy wand and I would uh, uh, automagically apply a culture change across the public sector to think data analytically about their mission, right? Mm. How they could be task specific, agile data-centered, evidence-based in doing that. And at the same time, I'm being greedy because it's a fairy wand, okay? Sure. So, so I want them to understand that can doesn't always mean should, uh. and that should can result in can, okay? So that you, you, we can focus on those things and think about that need to know change into responsibility to provide, still protecting constitutional liberties and so, uh, so on. So because as true data science coming out with truth uh, to our, our leadership is it's going to upset everybody in one way or the other, because it's not going to, the, the results are going to not necessarily comport with their ideologies with which they were elected. It is our system. It's fine. I'm just explaining that, that my metric of success for this is when data evidence-based things come out and it makes folks uncomfortable because this is not what I've, this does not confirm my normal beliefs. So Go ahead, Julia. Thank you, Julia. I would say that no data science work gets done without first establishing the value proposition and having people have voice into stating that value proposition. Thank you very much. That's an incredibly important point. And also, Tim and Julia, you have written many multiple articles for uh, HDSI. We invite you to continue to write more. And Tim, I hope you can write something for HDSI as well. All these points are extremely well taken. That uh, A lot more people need to read them and, and to know about them. 
on behalf of Liberty and myself, thank you both of you again for this truly fascinating and truly important conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you all so much for joining us on the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. Please make sure to check out Julia Lane's article in the HDSR website in previous issues. Thanks so much. Take care.